Well, hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. Lisa Anderson here with you, and I always like to give a little preview of what's coming up, and so I will do that. But also a side note that this week's show was produced by our summer intern, Maggie. Uh, She did everything from coming up with the guests to the topics to creating the preps and all of that and more. And so our thanks and kudos go to her for that. So later on for our inbox, we have a boyfriend who stopped viewing porn, but is still struggling with daily masturbation. And so both he and his girlfriend agree this is a habit he's got to stop before they continue their relationship. So counselor Jeremy Keaton is here to give some advice and practical boundaries that are going to help them. All right. And then for our culture segment, we have got Elisa Childers here. She has written a book titled Another Gospel, which is her story about seeking truth in response to progressive Christianity. So stay tuned for that. Well, here we are for our roundtable, and uh, this is going to be an interesting conversation. It's a two-parter, so you're going to want to stay tuned for next week because we will continue the conversation, but we're going to talk about biblical submission in marriage. So (laughs) Ephesians 5, what does it say and what does it mean for our lives, especially for those who are dating and moving into marriage? And so we have got George Stanky with us. He is part of our counseling department here at Focus on the Family, and he is also a pastor of many years, uh, served as a senior pastor, and is married himself. So George, welcome. My pleasure. Great to have you. Happily we, married, by the way. Happily married. My Excellent. wife is very I'm glad submissive. You gave that. Yes. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, we're already <laughs> off to a great start. <laughs> we have got Vaughn Lovejoy here. Vaughn, welcome. Hello. Good to have you. She is a young adult who is dating, not yet married, and so she's going to certainly be bringing her perspective and questions and possibly some angst to the table. We'll see how this plays out. <laughs> Maybe all the angst will be mine. And then Josh Zychik is here, also married dude. Mm-hmm. Um, how many years now? Uh, almost 11. Okay, almost 11 years. Um, now, is your wife as submissive as George's, or are you going to have more of a challenge here? <laughs> I, would, I would have to say that uh, her grandpa forewarned me and said, and, and I quote, she's a handful. Okay. So well, that, that was uh, her grandpa's okay. uh, quote. So, Well, we'll see, we'll see how this plays out as well. So, um, But you also, you're doing work in biblical counseling. I am, and yeah. Why, yeah. Doing okay. my doctoral work. Okay. So a lot of uh, practical advice here, a lot of knowledge and wisdom that we're going to bring to the table, hopefully with our guests. So, well, let's jump right into it because we clearly know a lot of people point to the passage in Ephesians 5 as kind of what the Bible has to say about submission in marriage. And I do want to clarify from the get-go that we're not going to talk about like roles of women and men elsewhere. So we're going to leave like the Mm -hmm. church generally out of this. We're going to leave out like the workplace and like, can women be CEOs? I hope so. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, you're going to be running this place next that's month. That's a or... different round table, whatever. But anyway, all those things, you know, we can't get to all of that in this show. So we want to talk about relationally, specifically in a, a biblical, a Christian marriage. And so um, let's start out, maybe, George, why don't you give kind of some, just a, a little bit of an overview of where we would say, like, what do people have to have in mind as far as what um, scripture is teaching here? I think the first question to ask is why? Why is this topic important? Why is organization important? I believe it's important for relational harmony. God wants us to be blessed in all of our relationships, to function in a co-equal way, recognize our distinctives so that we can minimize weakness, maximize strength. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. And I know, um, you know, several of us were talking about this the other day. And, and Josh, why don't you help us outline, you know, from what you see here and what we've discussed, what is this passage saying and what isn't it saying? Yeah, in the context here, uh, Ephesians 5, you've got Paul addressing multiple applications of submitting to leadership. And it should first be said, we all submit to God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, right? And his word, scripture, is what we follow in order to submit to him. And so there's actually, when you look at this passage, you want to keep it in context. You want to realize he's actually talking about, in the very next few verses, chapter 6, children obeying parents. So we all, as George said, um, submit to an authority. We do at work. We do in uh, the military. We we live in a military town. I mean, there's ranks, right? Um, And in this passage... I'm just going to read it, just a few excerpt here. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband's the head of 
the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And so what he's doing is he's making a comparative statement, and he's saying, Christ is the head, the leader uh, of the church. You follow Christ, right? And so the husband is the head of a home, and the wife should follow him, follow his lead. But there's a lot of unpacking of what that can look like applicationally, both, again, we're not going to go into the church context, but in the home context, you're just following the Lord. Mm -hmm. You're following in, in the church context. And in a home context, you're following your husband. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's good to distinguish because I think we want to make sure that we get out on the table here immediately that every individual made in the image of God has equal worth, equal dignity, and equal position as far as, you know, eternal position before God himself. Yeah, there's no man, no woman, no Jew, no Greek. I mean, we're all one in Christ in that sense. Yeah. I think, um, you know, George, you had alluded to this when we were talking before about how this is played out, you know, some aspects of the Trinity itself and mm -hmm. kind of this idea of like all, you know, Jesus referred to himself as God. We know the Father uh, certainly refers to himself as God. All God, but certainly, mm -hmm. you know, uh, serving different roles within the mm -hmm. Godhead and having appropriate, mm -hmm. you know, positioning as far as that plays out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a fascinating scripture. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all of whom are co-eternal, all of whom are co-equal, and yet they have distinct rank, distinct purpose, but it all culminates in one action, which is the salvation of our souls, bringing the kingdom of God forward. But they all do different things, but they are in concert with one another. It's a team effort. Yeah. I also think what's really good to, to say about this, and I often you know, have had to think this through for myself, and I, I share it with others too, is the idea that, because I think the minute you start talking about like, okay, roles or ranks or whatever, people, and by people, let me just say uh, myself and or women, <laughs> can start freaking out because mm -hmm. all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, that this is some crazy hierarchy, mm -hmm. and you're going to start telling me that I can and can't do things, and let's not get too crazy. But I always want to say and Josh said this, the ultimate authority is God himself. Mm -hmm. And he is checking up. <laughs> mm -hmm. So this isn't like guys have free reign to get crazy and just start telling women what to do. Absolutely. Every, I mean, the, the role and the responsibility is so great mm -hmm. for the person that's been given that kind of responsibility. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't Spider-Man that said that, y'all. That was uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was the Lord. A biblical yeah. principle. I mean, you if know? you continue to read Ephesians 5, it does say, wives submit to your husband. The next five or six verses are all what husbands should do. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so it is a bigger responsibility. I mean, mm -hmm. there is that equal partnership, but yeah, it's not just that one line that, mm -hmm. yes, it is important for wives, but husbands have a lot on their shoulders as well. Yeah. I do want to dig into this, um, George and Josh, beginning with you guys, because hello, you're married. I'm assuming <laughs> you're living this out. What have you done well <laughs> and what have you not done well in terms of this in your own relationships? Well, I think, first of all, Submission does not mean inferiority, mm -hmm. and it does not mean silence. Mm -hmm. My wife, I view my wife as my chief counsel. Mm -hmm. We do not make decisions independently. I mean, she understands God has called me to lead the family, but I understand God has called her to aggressively support me. Nobody knows my weaknesses better than she does, mm -hmm. and a wise employer a wise pastor will always staff to his weakness. Mm -hmm. And so Linda is such an incredible compliment. I am actually better. I've said this to her. I've said it publicly. I am a better husband, a better father, a better, a better leader because of her influence in my life because she's an incredibly godly woman. Mm -hmm. So we function as a team. We function as a unit. But we also understand the buck stops with me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I will be held accountable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll talk a little bit principally um, about the good. The good is when I'm really listening to her well, mm -hmm. um, because even any good leader has to have counselors around them. Scripture even says there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. You, mm -hmm. George, you've alluded mm -hmm. to that. So when I lead well, it's because I'm listening to her. Mm -hmm. um, but I'll give a negative example of when I didn't. Uh, my wife and I planted a church years ago um, in uh, Jefferson City, Missouri. And I really felt passionate to go do this. I wanted to 
see this church get started. I want to see the lost saved and people discipled and all this. And she wasn't there emotionally. Like she wasn't ready to go there. And I pressed on her and said, honey, I think that your lack of desire is, is more or less like a lack of passion for the lost. You know, I kind of, I, I put it more on a... Because that always goes over It, well. it went over really well. <laughs> okay. There were no tears at all uh, in that conversation. And uh, and I tell you, she did think through that and pray through that and, and ultimately landed on, okay, I don't necessarily want to do this, but I, I'm absolutely willing to follow you as we do this. Mm-hmm. And after hindsight, um, I do wish we had waited. I wish I had taken her uh, state of emotion and, and just passion or lack of passion at that point and listened better mm-hmm. because I think it would have been a better experience had her and I been on the exact same page on all cylinders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's such a great example because I think too often in relationships, um, and you guys can tell me if this is true, if it bears out this way, but um, we, we think that a decision has to be made immediately. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my goodness, we disagree. So husbands just make a choice and wives deal with it. You know, when really there's probably a lot more at play and mm-hmm. a lot more opportunity for, Absolutely. you know, for waiting and for listening yeah. and getting additional counsel. Um, George, I know you're pretty passionate about talking about what we talk about here at Focus on the Family in our Hope Restored program Mm -hmm. of moving together as Mm -hmm. a team Mm -hmm. and recognizing that really going for a win-win is always desirable whenever it is possible Mm -hmm. to have both people spiritually and emotionally on the same page. Too many times we talk and the woman finally says, okay, I've said my piece. I raise the flag of surrender. And the husband thinks, okay, we're in agreement. But surrender and agreement are not the same. Mm -hmm. So we have to talk. Sometimes we have to rest, let a few days pass, let the emotion settle, come back to the table. If we talk long enough and we look at all of the options, I believe the Holy Spirit will bring that truth to both parties so that there's that multiple witness. Mm -hmm. So when Linda and I planted our first church, she was on board. But we did talk, and oh my goodness, we got counsel from all kinds of people that were old enough to be our grandparents, you know, because we had never been a part of a team. We'd never done anything of that magnitude before. Mm-hmm. And even with all the counsel and even with the agreement between the two of us, man, oh man, did I make a lot of mistakes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's good. Okay, Vaughn, you're in your 20s. Okay. You're dating, not married yet. Yep. What like what kind of thoughts does this conversation bring up for you, or what have you thought about? Like, have you had this conversation with your boyfriend? I mean, what? It, it's usually it's not like let's go out for coffee and just talk about submission because who wouldn't? About you know? Ephesians five. Yeah. yeah. Um, I I mean I was even thinking while these guys were talking, the each generation has such a very different view mm-hmm. of this word submission from the Bible. I think. Um, I think it used to be, right, the very men and women, men are higher in everything than women. I think for my generation and just the younger adults right now, it's a lot about independence, especially independence in women, right? And so as Christian women, and especially for me, I have been dating my boyfriend for 10 years, so I've had some time to work this out. Um, I was a very independent person when we first started dating. I did not want to rely on anybody else. But there is that... And just to clarify, you were a super youngster when you started dating. You're (laughs) in high school. Yeah. (laughs) Not like kindergarten. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, just that equality of like, I have to be okay with not being completely independent all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that also just kind of goes into your relationship with Christ, right? Mm -hmm. You have to be okay Mm -hmm. with just giving him your worries and everything like that. And Mm -hmm. having that relationship and trusting that person i think um because i looked up a lot of different words in the dictionary the greek meaning of what they used for submissive in this um and it's really to support and be devoted to Mm -hmm. um and so just finding that way of like how will i support my boyfriend in this um and kind of take away that selfish wanting to be independent self okay and I think it is uh, important. I mean, this ju- I was just reminded of this as you were talking, Vaughn, and, and saying, you know, okay, yeah, my boyfriend. 
again, Ephesians 5 applies to marriage. So the mm-hmm. dating time frame and engagement is a great opportunity to get because you're not called to submit to boyfriends, nor are you called to submit to every man in your church or some random man mm-hmm. who wants to come up and say, uh, I think you need to submit to me. Um so it is important to use this time, I think, to get some great clarity around this and determine maturity. Yeah, what that. kind of leader is he going to be, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, if he's kind of bossing you around, mm-hmm. you're going to learn really quick. Like, I don't, I don't think that's the biblical leader I want to follow, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more of an unbiblical leader. Um, and same with the gals, because if you're, if you're looking at a gal who's, man, she just kicks at the goads, you know, everything you say, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a battle. Why do you want to marry that? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think uh, George made the point that the Trinity submits to the Trinity within itself, and you've got God exemplifying submission. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all called to die to self as we submit to Christ. So it's kind of, I think it's good to have helpful categories. Like we don't submit in sin. We, don't, we, we need to consider conscience issues. Um, if it's an issue of wisdom, you talked about the other day, George, about just how you know, maybe you're the one who balances the checkbook because that's something you're you're better at or you, your wife just prefers you do it. Like, that's okay, right? Like, to have preferences and just give those up to serve someone. Mm-hmm. So what, I mean, I think uh, one of the, you know, part of the crux of the issue here, I think it revolves a lot around fear and fear of the unknown and fear. I mean, clearly we cannot control other people. Mm-hmm. We can't predict 15 years from now, what is this spouse going to be like, whatever. So how do we wrestle with and entrust to God the fears around this? Because, for example, I could say as a woman and with the friends I've had conversations with, what do I do about you know, what if you marry someone and the guy is just lame, you know? I mean, he just doesn't literally like doesn't want to lead or doesn't care or doesn't Mm -hmm. do it appropriately. Or again, this is where we can touch on what if there really are incidences of straight up misapplication of this to a Mm -hmm. point where it gets Mm -hmm. abusive emotionally Mm -hmm. or otherwise? What do we do in that situation? I think the word safety is critical in relationship, especially the premarital relationship. So instead of looking at how handsome is he, how well does he tip at the restaurant, put everything All into All important a safe- things, but oh, keep yes, going. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Think in terms of safety. What does safety mean to you? We're talking about emotional, verbal, physical, sexual. I mean, I'm counseling a couple right now. They're in their mid-50s, both divorced. He is pushing her to have sex. And she is really struggling. She's the more mature of the two. She's been a Christian for a long time. He's committed himself to the Lord probably about three months ago. Mm. And he says, in my presence and hers, I've given up all kinds of things. She needs to give up something as well. And I'm talking to her and saying, let me ask you a question. Do you follow Christ first? Is he first in this relationship? Because if he's not, then we're talking about a serious safety issue. Um, and, and so it, they hadn't been thinking in those terms of safety. They were thinking, is it Christian? Is it non-Christian? Is it right? Is it wrong? If a man pushes a woman to compromise her conscience, this man is not safe, and you should turn around and run away. Mm-hmm. Because marriage doesn't fix safety issues. Mm-hmm. Marriage doesn't fix those problems. Yeah, I, th- I think, again, going back on uh, this passage in Ephesians where it says, submit in everything, um, the husbands don't have a carte blanche right to demand everything. Right. Uh, scripture interprets Scripture. Right. And so when a, when a man is asking a woman to sin, and here a clear example would be a uh, past issue I had as a pastor where the husband— asking his wife to view pornography together to enhance intimacy. Um, That is sin. So he's asking her to do something that is clearly against the Lord. Mm -hmm. These are things where a woman can draw a line and say, no, I don't submit to that because I submit to Christ first. Going back to George's uh, point there. Other issues of conscience, wisdom, preference, you have to always categorize these things. I think it's helpful. Um, Yeah, I can give up a preference, whatever. What color the you know, the baby's room is or the bedroom or the 
drapes or whatever. These are minor things. But when we're talking about issues that involve um, harm to self, mm-hmm. um, disobedience to scripture, um, disobedience even to law, we, we have a, a civil system. And so if your husband is forcing you or your boyfriend is encouraging you to do things that are not helpful to you physically, uh, drugs, alcohol, you know, these types of things, mm-hmm. you, you got to be aware of the whole counsel of scripture and not just say, ah, that one verse by itself tells me I have to do everything he says. Um, that's uh, just the beginnings of how I start to think mm-hmm. through it. So have you, Vaughn, have you had, like, what does this look like for you? Like, are there any things that you've thought of, like, heading into marriage of, like, oh, I need to make sure I get this cleared up on the front end or get this question answered or whatever? Um, I'm not 100% sure. I have had mm-hmm. the dear blessing of dating for 10 years, the same person. And so we have grown a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, three years ago, there were some things that I was not okay with. And there was probably things my boyfriend wasn't okay with, but we've grown. And that's not saying that everyone should date someone for 10 years before they get married. Mm-hmm. Um, you can if you want. But um, <laughs> it's just been very interesting to learn it um, and to get counsel mm-hmm. from people. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents happened to be divorced, so I didn't get to see that growing up. And so it has been a big learning game for me. Mm-hmm. So I love hearing mm-hmm. from like married people, whether it's male or female, just how different it is. Because sometimes it could be those sadly abusive situations. Mm-hmm. And sometimes mm-hmm. it is the how much does he tip mm-hmm. at the restaurant? And that's like a big thing. So I, I've been learning. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just the biggest thing. Yeah, yeah so. that's great. Linda and I have been married for 45 years. I am still learning how to be a good husband. And she is still learning about submission. (laughs) Well, we, I mean, I can't believe how, you know, we're already out of time. We're actually going to continue this conversation next week. Um, We're going to bring in our friend Diane, who has much to say from a married woman's perspective on this. And so we will continue the conversation. But thank you guys so much for being part of this and uh, joining us today. We appreciate it. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Not just a thing up in the sky, a sweet by and by. No, no. Not just a set of pearly gaze of angels with wings. No, it's more. Heaven is here. Heaven is now. Heaven is a thing that is coming down. It lives in the hearts of those who believe the kingdom of God that's living in me. Bring it Folks, for today's culture segment, we're going to introduce a new friend here to the Boundless Show, but you may actually know her, those of you that have followed uh, CCM for a while and are familiar with uh, Christian groups out there. Um, I have got Elisa Childers here. Uh, She is formerly of the band Zoe Girl, uh, but now she actually is doing a fair amount of blogging, speaking, and she has written a book titled Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to progressive Christianity. So, Elisa, welcome to The Boundless Show. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, this is cool, and um, I'm really appreciative of the topic we're going to discuss today because I think many in our audience have some, they have heard the term progressive Christianity, they have probably wrestled with it, maybe they've read it in a blog post or heard someone mention it in church or on a podcast, and uh, I would love to start out our conversation because I'm sure there are some vague ideas about it, there are some probably erroneous ideas, so if you could kind of, you know, give us a definition per se of what we're going to be talking talking about today, that would be a great start. Yes, well, that's an important question because progressive Christianity can be very difficult to define. It's hard to pin down. It's kind of like trying to nail jello to a wall. And that's because uh, it's a movement of people who grew up in the church who essentially are questioning, redefining, reinterpreting, and often rejecting core historic doctrines of the Christian gospel. 
And so in progressive Christianity, they're, they're not largely united around creeds as Christians historically have been. Uh, it's really more about what you, what you do than what you believe. But as I studied the movement for a couple of years, reading the books and listening to the podcasts, I did discover that there are some sort of core tenets that unite progressive Christians, and that would be largely what they deny rather than what they affirm. And so just a, a couple of starting points to help people begin to think about what this movement is all about is that largely speaking in progressive Christianity, they, they deny the idea of original sin or that humans have an inherent sinful nature and that that sin would separate us from God. And so in the progressive paradigm, you're not separated from God. You just have to realize how beloved you are and how beautiful you are and, and just realize that you've never been separated from God. And then, of course, that's going to lead into the atonement and in the progressive mindset, the idea that God the Father would require the blood sacrifice of his only son, this implicates the moral character of God, turning God into some kind of a divine child abuser. So the, the phrase cosmic child abuse is something you'll hear a lot in progressive circles. And so if you take kind of those theological foundations and marry them with postmodern relativism, sort of this live your truth, you know, what's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me. If you put those things together, you you basically have an idea of what progressive Christianity is. Okay. So, for example, we did not too long ago here at Boundless a blog post uh, about Kevin Max and his uh, describing his own exit from evangelicalism and, and basically calling himself an ex-evangelical and defined himself as believing in what he called the universal Christ. So is this evidence mm-hmm. of progressive Christianity or a form of it? I actually do believe that that is a form of progressive Christianity, and I, I have a couple of things to say about that. So first of all, the evangelical hashtag is something that you'll see very often accompanying somebody coming out with a deconstruction story, and it can be a little misleading because people generally, when they use that hashtag, they're not just defining themselves as something other than evangelical, it usually involves more of a walking away from the historic faith altogether. And in Kevin Max's case, you know, he came out saying, I, I follow the universal Christ now, and I saw a bunch of comments from Christians thinking, what is that? What's he talking about? Well, that was a concept that was very familiar to me because I've been studying uh, this concept of the universal Christ as it relates to progressive Christianity. And essentially what that's about is it's a new age concept that separates Jesus from Christ, as if they're two completely separate entities. And uh, this has been kind of smuggled into the church, largely through a Franciscan friar named Richard Rohr, who is a, a, a real spiritual father and mentor to many progressive thought leaders. And the idea is that, you know, Jesus was this human who laid hold of this Christ consciousness, which is the divinity that infuses all creation. And so once we do that, if we follow Jesus as a model and example of somebody who attained that Christ consciousness, you know, we can look, I can look at you and say, you're the Christ. You can say the same about me. We can say that about our pets and about the trees and the plants, really all of creation. And so it's a very new age, even Hindu concept that's been smuggled into the church. And it's really gaining a foothold in the movement of progressive Christianity. Yeah. Well, and it is, you know, to kind of echo your earlier point, it is so confusing because without people really knowing what we're talking about, I've had friends say, oh, well, I'm probably an ex-evangelical because I, I'm going to leave the Republican Party, you know, or they make it about right. <laughs> some kind of cultural thing. And then you're like, no, there are very distinct uh, doctrinal things or, or foundations to the Christian faith that almost it makes progressive Christianity, calling it a Christianity is kind of a misnomer in and of itself. I totally agree, and that's a really important point to bring up, because a lot of Christians, when they hear the phrase progressive Christianity, they think, oh, maybe it's just a a group of Christians who are changing their mind on some political issues or even some social issues, or maybe they're becoming more mission-minded or something like that. But what people really have to understand, and this is what I argue for in my book, is that we're talking about foundational, core essential doctrines that are being rejected. This is not just a group of people who are changing their minds on some secondary issues or even politics. This is an attack on the core foundation of what it actually means to be a Christian, on the things that have defined Christianity and made it unique in the world for 2,000 years. So that's a very important point to bring out. 
Yeah. Well, I do want to back up a little bit because there's a reason why you're talking about these topics and why you wrote the book, Another Gospel. And it's because of your own unique story and your own personal deconstruction, if you will, which uh, incidentally happened within the church, which some people may find surprising. So let's talk about that a little bit. Back up and, and tell us how this came about for you. Yeah, well, it surprised me as well, because I grew up in a Christian home with wonderful Christian parents. I was always a really solid believer. In fact, I don't even remember a time in my life when I wasn't aware of the presence of Jesus, when I didn't believe that the Bible was his word. Now, that faith was not a blind faith. It was informed by a lot of things. It was informed biblically. It was informed by watching the Christians in my life really live what they believed. But it was untested intellectually. I didn't know that at the time, but it wasn't until I was an adult. This would have been after my time in the contemporary Christian music industry. And my husband and I began attending a church in just right here in the heart of Middle Tennessee, where we lived. And the pastor invited me to be a part of an inner circle type study and discussion group. And it was in the context of this group that the pastor revealed to us that he was actually an agnostic. He called himself a hopeful agnostic. And I I didn't know what to make of that, but over the course of the several months that I was in the class, everything that I had believed about Jesus and about my faith and about the Bible was sort of put on this intellectual chopping block, and it was all explained away. It was deconstructed. And and while I was in the class, I would try to argue with him. I would go home and Google stuff, and I would just try to, to refute what he was saying, and I didn't do a very good job. But it was after we ended up leaving the church and leaving that class that all of those doubts that he had planted began to take root in my own heart, and they began to really grow. And it threw me into a a dark night of the soul. It threw me into deconstruction. And I just, I I cried out to the Lord one night. I said, God, if you exist, if you're real, if everything that I have believed my whole life is true, you got to, you got to show up. Yeah. Somebody can talk to me about these things. And essentially what happened is the, the Lord introduced me to the discipline of apologetics and theology, church history, and I began to study. And I studied for many, many years and tested a lot of those claims that that pastor was making. And I really came out on the other side of it really assured that the Christian worldview is true, that the Bible stands tall atop all of the accusations that are brought against it. And so it's such a thrill now to be able to help some other people through some of the doubts they're having about their faith. But but the Lord really reconstructed my faith after my deconstruction through the, the discovery of apologetics. Yeah. So here's a here's a question, because I know, again, bumping up against friends and others, whether on social media and beyond, who have kind of, you know, are, are starting to tread into this space. Um, let's talk about it seems to me like it's kind of a frog in the kettle situation for a lot of people where they are, um, you know, they're going to tell me, for example, Lisa, you know, I, I still am a Christian. Um, I still believe in the Bible, you know, whatever they're saying that means. But then it's kind of a chipping away on an issue by issue basis. So maybe they're going to start caving around uh, issues of sexuality, as outlined in Scripture, or around the inerrancy of Scripture itself, or maybe the topic of hell. What have you seen when you, I mean, it's not like someone just wakes up one day and all of a sudden they they decide to be a progressive Christian or they decide to abandon the tenets of Orthodox Christianity. So what what is contributing to this and what are some good things for folks to look out for, earnest young adult Christians who are listening right now who are like, I know a lot of people who probably fall in this camp and quite frankly, you know, you and I know, Elisa, there are a lot of influencers out there on social media and in podcasting who are funny and witty and smart, and they're probably in this camp. So what do we need to watch out for? Yeah, this is an important question, and you're exactly right. It's not like progressive Christians walk into church and say, hi, I'm a progressive Christian, and I'm here to change your mind about all these topics. It's really a slow and subtle drift. It's very, very subtle. It can be very confusing. And so I think that you've outlined a a couple of things that contribute to it as far as the redefinition of sexuality. But I think a huge one is the view of the Bible. So the view of the Bible in the progressive Christian movement uh, is kind of the first domino to fall, so to speak. And so what people need to understand is that in the progressive view, 
the Bible isn't a book that God wrote to humans in the sense that what we have is God's word. In the progressive paradigm, it's often spoken of as a human book that humans wrote about God. And so when they look back at an Old Testament prophet who said, you know, the Lord says this, or this is what the Lord says to Israel, in the progressive mindset, that isn't God talking. That was just the Israelites doing their best to understand God in the times and the places in which they lived. And so we can look at what they wrote, and we can analyze, and we can figure out what they believed about God and what they thought God was like, but that doesn't necessarily reflect what God was like. And so you can imagine, if you knock that domino down, the, the whole Christian worldview is going to follow. Because essentially, at that point, you no longer have the Bible as your authority, but you've really made your own personal conscience, your, your personal feelings about what works for you, what's true for you, to be that authority for who God is. In fact, you'll hear many progressive Christians say, you read an Old Testament story, and they will say, that is not how God is like. That's just what they thought God was like. So the confusion that that can introduce to somebody when they're hearing, like you said, somebody who's really funny, really witty, uh, that seems to be really knowledgeable about what the Bible says, it can be incredibly confusing. But I think the thing that Christians need to stand on is, is remembering that that Jesus' view of the Scriptures, Jesus had quite a bit to say about the Old Testament Scriptures, and his view was that the Bible is the Word of God. He said it over and over and over again when he would quote an Old Testament prophet. He would say things like, God said this to you. And so I think as Jesus' followers, we need to keep our feet rooted in that, that, that we follow Jesus. Our view of Scripture should be what Jesus' view was. Our view of marriage should be what Jesus' view was. And sometimes those things are going to be out of step with where culture is at. But again, Jesus promised that would happen too. And he promised us this gift of peace. And so I think that that we need as Christians to be careful not to make those subtle little steps away from biblical authority, from inerrancy, as you mentioned, but to hold fast to those things, because that's what keeps us anchored in the truth. Yeah. So how do we, you know, because I think there there's a tension here, especially with younger folks who are, you know, like the folks out there, all of y'all who are listening, um, that are very concerned about like, Okay, but how do we do that and not be like the weirdo, angry, quote unquote, fundamentalist Christians? I mean, <laughs> holding holding yeah. to the truth of Scripture, but not all of a sudden majoring on minors. Like, how do we separate what truly is important from, uh, you know, because so, it seems like everyone else is so so cool and so open and so, you know, oh, we just want to, we're curious, you know, you hear all these terms being thrown yeah. around by those who are, are re-examining their faith, so to speak. Um, what does it look like for mm-hmm. us to, to hold to truth, but also be loving and compassionate in the people who care about the world around us? Well, my advice would be, if you, if you believe the real gospel, that is going to ignite in you a love for people. But what we have to remember, though, is that Paul said the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So you can say the gospel as winsomely and as persuasively as you possibly can and with all the love you have in your heart. But to people who hate God and hate the gospel, it's still not going to sound good to them. They're still going to find it hateful. They're still going to find it um, something that sort of stings in their nostrils. And it reminds me of what Paul said I believe it was in First Corinthians, he said, when we spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ, and so that tells me that the knowledge of Christ, it has a smell. It's going to smell like something to everybody. And Paul said, to those who are uh, being saved, it's the fragrance of life, but to those who are perishing, it smells like death. And so that's not going to change. Like, we have to sort of just stiffen our spines a bit and say, you know, when we preach the gospel— the people that God is saving, they're going to love this. This is going to be life and wholeness and health and healing and everything wonderful to them. But to those who are not being saved, to those who are perishing, this is going to stink. And there's no way we're going to be able to say it to make it palatable to them. I mean, if Jesus himself couldn't make the gospel palatable to certain people, we're not going to be able to do that either. So we have to be willing to suffer. We have to be willing to be thought of as the uncool group. We have to be willing to be mocked. We have to be willing to be called names and to stand up under that knowing that we have the same Holy Spirit that Christians have had for 2,000 years. And he will enable and empower us to stand on the truth. But but we want to also make sure that we're being as loving and winsome and persuasive as we possibly can. Yeah. 
So, you know, I think it's obvious. We know scripturally that God knows those who are his. I mean, the shepherd knows his sheep. They know his voice. But it also can be a little unsettling, Elisa, when we see, you know, we we referenced Kevin Max or here at Boundless, you know, we had Josh Harris was a friend of Boundless for years and has now decided that Mm. he, you know, he doesn't, at least he has the guts to say he's not a Christian. Like he, you know, he's not trying to define himself as that. But it is very emotional and sad for people who have, you know, loved a person and or read a person and followed them and whatever, and to see leaders and others walking away, so to speak, from the faith. How do we deal with the the sadness and the emotion around that and still trust God in the process? Mm, what a good question. And it's such an important question, because I know that everybody listening to this, myself included, has people in their lives that they love who have either walked entirely away from God or maybe drifted into a more progressive type of Christianity where you're just looking at your friend going, we used to be on the same page with this stuff, and now we just couldn't be any farther apart. And I think that we, you know, the best advice that I can give is just to not view your relationships with people as like, hey, I just want to get in, drop a truth bomb, and get out. This is going to be long-term stuff. This is going to be walking with people, really having a discipleship mentality with people to where we're patient. I think one of the areas the church could get a little better would be to provide a better space for people to ask their honest questions, to be able to doubt more openly, because I personally think that honest doubt is a really important part of the the maturing process as a Christian. If you just accept everything that somebody tells you without questioning anything and not doubting what people are telling you, then you're just going to end up parroting whatever they said and not really own this faith for yourself. So it's going to, you know, we have to walk through some of our doubts and not push those down. But I think the church can maybe do a better job. Maybe we can do a better job at walking through that with a friend. If we have a friend with an honest question, to not push that friend away, but say, man, that's a, that's a really good question. Let's investigate the answer together. And I think that's really the answer is to walk with people in love, realizing too, and trying to maybe diagnose the wound that might be under some of the questions. Because often when you listen to deconstruction stories, you do discover that there's some kind of a wounding there, whether they've encountered church abuse, spiritual abuse, or maybe a hyper-legalistic uh, type environment that they grew up in. Um, there's always some, something like that down there, maybe trying to get to the bottom of that and showing them the love of Jesus and and the healing aspect of the gospel. Because, you know, Jesus hates abuse. He had a lot to say to abusive spiritual leaders in his day. And so to maybe acknowledge, you know, look, that what you went through was wrong, and Jesus hates that too. But he, the gospel is the cure, not the problem. And that, I think, is the thing that gets lost in progressive Christianity, is they'll, they'll have a bad experience and then throw the whole gospel out with, kind of like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. Well, and it is, you know, it just reminds me of it's it's kind of our newer version of um, where where we're trying to cloud the main thing with a lot of ancillary issues. And so, you know, whereas in yeah. the, the 80s and 90s in the church, you know, it was all about let's not talk about the gospel. Let's just muddy the waters by talking about, you know, whether it's end times theology or abortion or creationism. And let's get all hung up on those. And like now today, it's mm. like, you know, I think very much um, progressives are trying to say, you know, oh, no, okay, no, it's the progressives who love the poor and no one else does. It's the progressives who care about women and no one else does. It's the progressives who are pursuing justice. No one else is. And then everyone's all worked up because they're like, I want to pursue justice. I care about women. I, And so, you know, yeah, this isn't about all those ancillary issues. It really is about what is the gospel? What is scripture? Uh, Very foundational issues. And that's why we have to be in the word and be willing to uh, pursue this and pursue truth and, uh, you know, not get tossed about, as Scripture says, by every wind of, of doctrine and beyond. So, um, well, Elisa, yeah. this conversation has been so great. Again, there is so much more in Elisa's book, Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. And I want everyone to know that, um, actually, this is going to be a, uh, a book that we want to offer you for a gift of any amount to Boundless. So if you go to boundless.org, uh, in fact, you can search for 704 this week's episode. You'll see the book cover there. Just click on it. Again, 
gift of any amount to Boundless. We would love to send this book to you as our thank you to you. And so um, it's just a great way to get it into your hands. Maybe you and a friend can read it together and talk this through and um, talk to a pastor, your pastor at church, and just, uh, you know, figure out where things stand. And if your pastor tells you they're a hopeful agnostic, uh, it's time to start asking (laughs) some questions. So meanwhile, Elisa, thank you so much for being part of this conversation, for writing this book and for uh, really examining it in your own heart and beyond. We really appreciate it. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I want to go back to Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me, for the Bible tells me so. I want to go back to this little life, going to let it shine, going to let it shine. Folks, as we finish out the show, we open up our inbox and answer one of your questions. And uh, today's question, we actually brought in one of our counselors, Jeremy, to address. Um, It involves porn usage and just some questions about that, uh, even in light of a dating context. And so, Jeremy, welcome. Good to be with you. Glad that we can talk about an important topic. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, here is the question. Uh, She says, my boyfriend has confided in me that he has struggled with porn use in the past. Thankfully, he no longer looks at porn, but still struggles with daily masturbation. We both agree that this is a habit that needs to stop before we can continue our relationship. With porn, many people say to set boundaries, get a dumb phone instead of a smartphone, cut off internet access, etc. But what boundaries can we put in place besides accountability to help specifically with masturbation as a single who lives alone and doesn't have a spouse to release sexual energy with? Well, very personal question, yeah. right? And uh, pretty pretty intimate topics. And so I'll, I'll just start with a few thoughts and we'll continue to cover from this point. I really want to accentuate that she can't be his accountability, first of all. Mm-hmm. And also pornography use and masturbation usually has more than just the behavioral elements driving it. There's often things that it is, for some people, if it's used addictively, um, especially pornography, but but also can be this way with masturbation, where it is a, it's a, a self-soothing for stress, loneliness, triggers. And so really not just trying to stop behavior. That's not the most important thing in and of itself. Or you simply get into this cycle of trying harder, trying harder, and not understanding what's driving it underneath it. So uh, it is important to really look below the surface of what's going on and have some learning and some insight about that rather than just trying to stop some behavior. You need to know what's driving it and the why behind it. The second thing to go into their relationship, I, I'm not sure, did she say how long they've been dating? Not, looks like she doesn't say yeah, specifically. Yeah, and so yeah. the context matters a bit to me as well because mm-hmm. this is such a personal and intimate discussion, and I'm just going to presume that they have been together a, a long time mm-hmm. or long enough to be at a place where it's appropriate to really be sharing these parts of your mm-hmm. your story and your life. And so the scriptures talk about guarding your heart, and uh, it's the wellspring of life, and knowing when it's appropriate to delve into this level of intimacy and discussions Mm -hmm. when dating. Uh, But it certainly is appropriate at certain stages. But even when it's appropriate, it's not going to be beneficial to the dynamic of a dating relationship, uh, even an engagement, that uh, she is his primary accountability or the one sort of driving this thought or this change or agenda, it needs to be something that he owns Mm -hmm. and that he says, I want to grow in my maturity, my self-control, 
And specifically in the area of masturbation, you know, there's there's a developmental issue that happens for young men where there's self-discovery, but then there is a maturing issue that really has to do with the fruits of the Spirit, self-control. And what you really want to hopefully be seeing as you grow together um, in your upcoming courtship and marriage is that the fruits of self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, are coming along online, and you see the evidence of that. And he will need someone in his life, another male, who can help and unpack that, sometimes even counseling if it's a very compulsive issue. Yeah, and that's good. And it looks like she is very determined to put a pause on their relationship until she sees, you know, some direction here. But like you said, you know, she shouldn't be the one that's prodding him or checking up on him or being, you know, his accountability partner. So does she just need to have a conversation with him about like, you need to go after this. And at this point, we need to pause or next steps for a conversation? Yeah. I think that out of self-respect for her and really raising the bar and then watching what mm-hmm. what uh, he does to invest in his life, you can say something like, I, I, re- I respect your openness with me. And you don't want to pr- approach this from a condemning or shame-based mm-hmm. issue, but use I-based language that says, you know, some of the some of the planning, some of the standards that I have for myself would be just to make sure that um, the person that I'm going to marry or date seriously is really moving in a direction that's sound and healthy and self-controlled in the area of of sexuality. And so I'm just going to step back and kind of observe, if you don't mind letting me know, you know, not specifics, but how you are setting up support in your life in this area. But I don't really even need the details at this point, but maybe also, Lisa, if they are in an engagement or coming up on engagement, it would be appropriate to get a premarital mentor, Mm -hmm. somebody that she and he both have access to and uh, can, that person can speak into their lives. And that person might be his primary accountability. And then she has access to visit with that individual at some level too. That will help, um, help assure her that he is placing himself in community and has some directionality in this part of his life. Yeah, good points. So, well, thank you so much, Jeremy, for weighing in on that. Okay, folks, um, well, that is it for this week's show. And hopefully questions like this, when we have experts in to respond to them, are helpful to you. Um, If you know someone that could benefit from the advice that we give on the show, feel free to pass the link to the show along because that's a great way for people to access uh, the biblical wisdom and counsel that you are getting. Also, hop over to Boundless.org and you can search our archives for things that we have addressed in the past. And so um, write to us at editor at Boundless.org if there's something something you would like us to answer in the future, and we would be happy to do so. Well, that is it for this week's show. I'm Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org. Focus on the family.